Uh, well, good to be with you guys. Um, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here at Mariners. It is really great to see you guys at Easter Sunday. If this is your, if you regularly attend church here, this is like, you know, you're here every week. Let me just say to you, welcome home. And if this is a new place to you, maybe you've been away from church for a while. Uh, maybe, as Mike said, the last, maybe for you, um, if you haven't been, away, been here in a really long time, this, years ago when I was in high school, it was a movie theater, and maybe you literally were, like, someone said, hey, come with me, we're going over here, and you're like, oh, it's a movie theater, said, wait a second, this is a church, and what happened, Where, you know, if that's you, if you've been bribed or tricked, you were kidnapped, you were coerced, you were guilt-tripped into being here, I'm really glad that you're here, and I promise you, this will not be as painful as you are imagining it will, it will be, I promise. And I just want to say, as... Um, you know, as we sort of talk about the Easter story, that I, we just want to make it clear that the central figure of the Easter story uh, has maybe been obscured or maybe been lost a little bit. And we just want to make sure we don't talk about anything except that. We want to make sure that you understand and we're very clear about the, the Easter story and the, the central sort of figure of that story. And so that's why I want to talk to you guys about peeps. Um, last Sunday night at the Irvine campus where we had a, a gathering of sort of college-age folks and we decided we were going to do a peep roast, which means that it's, you know, no different than a marshmallow sort of, you know, roast with s'mores and whatever. But instead of using marshmallows, you, you, yeah, thank you. I didn't realize we had that graphic. Our crack team of graphics experts put that together in between services, evidently. But we had, um, we had a little get together, put the, the peeps on a flame. And, you know, you sort of, it is sort of a tragic moment when you have to skewer a peep. You know, like a marshmallow is sort of this white blob, but a, a peep, it has a face and has a cute little... Whatever, and so that's actually why I'm wearing a pink shirt today. It's just sort of a moment of solidarity for all, my, all the peeps. You, the tears, I hear them and I respond to them and the peeps do too. They hear your cries. Okay, so we're there, we're doing this. And so we have them over those, you know, like little canned heat, like sterno. You know, you put them, they put them under like chafing dishes at buffets. You know, the mysterious sort of almost totally transparent flame that you're not sure how it works. That's underneath. It's almost like an optical illusion. That would reason those. And people are roasting the marshmallow, the peeps, and, you know, it's, it's kind of cool. And you're like, that's so fun. We're all roasting. Everyone's enjoying themselves, having a great time. And, you know, I should also say this, that, you know, well, there's, there's two kinds of, of fuel in those canned heats. On the one hand, there's a perfectly safe for burning flames directly onto food canned heat. And then there is another fuel, evidently, which is incredibly toxic, now, people are enjoying their sort of, their peeps over the open flame. And someone says, as we're all, there's hundreds of, you know, college-age folks. Someone says, hey, stop eating the peeps. And I start thinking to myself, we have an activist trying to protect peeps. I mean, college kids rally about whatever, you know, we stop torturing peeps, you know. And I, pink shirt, you know, I'm, I'm on your side. And there's this sort of, all of a sudden you get this sort of energy about stop eating the peeps. And he goes, the flame, this is toxic. What you're eating is totally toxic. And I'm like, I did what any good host would do as sort of the leader of this thing, is I totally ignored the guy. I just was like, well, everybody's having a really good time. So some of you are like, yeah, they're having a really good time. They're high. Uh, but people are enjoying themselves. And I just kind of let stuff go. And you, you start to wonder, though, as you start here, you're watching the way the peeps sort of are, are, are you know, mercilessly sort of expose these toxic flames because things that are supposed to burn over a flame kind of turn a golden brown. Peeps turn, at least these were turning sort of a mustard, deli mustard yellow. And you're like, this can't be right. And their sad eyes, their little peep eyes. <laughs> you know, just this sort of sad moment. 
And you have to wonder that the originator of the peeps, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Peep, whoever they are, uh, they, they had no intention that their peeps would be exposed to toxins, that people would be eating them in this way, that there was, there was some sort of more justice and more dignity given to the original intent of peeps. And we might have known that, but we chose to do it our own way. And it is into this story, into this framework that I want to talk to you about Easter. Because in a strange way, this sort of story of, of the peeps is emblematic of the whole arc of humanity up until the picture of Jesus. If you want to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15, there is this guy, his name is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing a letter to a bunch of churches, and one of the churches he writes to is a church in Corinth, which is in Greece. And he's sort of, kind of, he gets to the end of his letter, this is in um, you know, 1 Corinthians 15, he gets to the end of his letter, and he's about ready to sort of say, okay, here's everything, you guys, we're just going to boil it all down. And here's how he starts in verse, uh, verse 3, he says this, now, brothers and sisters, oh, sorry, that's verse 1. Verse 3, <laughs> for what I, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Let me stop there. What he's saying is, we've talked about a lot of really important things, and they were very important. And whatever else has happened, whatever else the church might have done or shown you or whatever, whatever you're going to hold on to, hold on to this. This is of first importance. So here's what he says. That Christ died for our sins. Then he says these four words twice. According to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day. According to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. Which is another word for for Peter. And then to the twelve. Meaning the the original disciples. Now the word according to the scriptures. is the, The phrase according to the scriptures. Is used twice in only three verses. And it is to say. Using this sort of phrase. That, the, that this event, the Easter event of Jesus dying, being buried, you know, rising again and appearing to people, fits into a much larger framework, a much bigger story. And so that story begins in the book of Genesis, the beginning of all things, the beginning of the Bible. And the story of Genesis looks like this, as it starts in chapter 1. There's this sort of, the way creation takes place over six days is like this. On the first three days, there are what are called forming days in which boundaries are set and things are set apart from each other. So on the first day, you have the division of light and darkness. On the second day, you have the separation of the sky from the sea. And on the third day, you have the separation of the land from the sea. And every one of those days in the first three days of creation awaits its complementary pair on the last three days. So, for instance, day one, where light is separated from darkness, there is then its awaiting sort of the filling, the filling days of the sun and the moon and the stars. And then in day two, the sky is separated from the sea and it awaits its filling day. This is a forming day. It's awaiting its filling day of birds in the air and fish in the sea. Are you with me? And the pattern sort of continues. And after each day, God looks at creation and says, it is good. What has been created is, is good. And on the sixth day, there's a variation a little bit from what he, how he describes it. Every other day is good. After he creates human beings, he says, it is very good. And then there's a seventh day described. Only it's neither a forming nor a filling day. And because nothing is being created, nothing is being formed or filled, it is to say that the work itself, the entire work of creation has been completed. And that stamp on it, day seven, says it is really great. It is good. It says this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. 
Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, there's nothing missing. There's nothing broken. There's a wholeness to creation. And sort of there's a Hebrew word that sort of captures this idea of wholeness and harmony. It is the Hebrew word shalom. It is to say that there is perfect intimacy between the creation and the creator. All of who God is is reflected without any blemish by the created, by the created order of all things. There is harmony and peace. It is to say there's no envy or exploitation. There's no bitterness. There's no fighting. There's no jealousy. There's no rage. There's no insecurity. There's no violence. There's no kids fighting in the back of our minivan as we drive down today, later, to visit my cousin in Carlsbad. That won't just, that's kind of shalom we're talking about. There's no last night as I'm lying in my bed having my three-year-old show up next to me with a sort of runny nose and he began to snore like, 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 an, over, like an overweight sleep apnea sufferer in their mid-60s. I mean, it was just this unbelievable lumberjack experience of sawing logs in the middle of the night, my three-year-old. And so I got up out of the middle of the night and I went into his bunk bed and I found my wife on the bottom bunk and I was on the top bunk. And so the two of us <laughs> slept in my son's bunk bed while our kids... My daughter also there in our bed. That's not, none of that was happening because there was harmony and wholeness and togetherness. Intimacy between all of creation and the creator. His design functioned as he intended it to be. His original intent was fully lived out. And we look at the world and we say, where did that go? According to this story, according to the scriptures... There's an act of rebellion that is carried out by the first man and woman that has an effect that lasts throughout all of, all of time, even to today. Romans 5 says this. You don't have to turn there in your Bible. I'll just sort of read it to you really quickly. It says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, meaning Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sin. In other words, there was a reverberating effect from a single act of rebellion against God's creation. That where, we, where we began to experience sort of the beginnings of vandalized shalom. Three chapters later, Paul, the writer in Romans, says this as well. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. In other words, it wasn't just human beings that began to experience the brokenness of God's intended design. It was all of creation. Now, because shalom has been vandalized, we already know this. It's actually the experience of our normal, where brokenness is actually the normal of our experience. Uh, these are just some of the headlines I found this week on Reuters as I was looking to try and find some sort of headline. I didn't, I was really, I wasn't like trying to find the worst things. These are just the ones I could find super fast. It took me about 30 seconds. Here's the headlines. Prison time for New Orleans ex-cops in post-Katrina killings. Ex-student charged with murder in California shooting. Santa Monica College Chief defends pepper spraying of students. Ammonia used in many foods, not just pink slime. So for those of you who are eating pink slime, go ahead and stop doing that and other foods which are yet to be named. So I don't know. So whatever that means, ammonia's there. And there's a French militant attack. And you get this picture here, that there's something going on here that wasn't intended. Yeah, I, just, I went also, I was looking at their, I clicked on the, uh, uh, just some pictures on their, their sort of pictures tab on Reuters. This is the pictures of the day. Here are the pictures, this is just pictures of the day. Here's humanity, pictures of the day. Here's the first one, picture of tornado damage. Okay, brokenness, chaos. 
Something missing, something broken. Here's a, a picture of a protester in Athens. There's one guy facing off, an army, facing off against an army of riot police and tear gas. Picture of the day, here's one of a crack epidemic unfolding in Brazil. And we look at this and we go, whatever shalom is, that isn't it. Whatever God's wholeness and harmony and togetherness, this intimacy between all of creation and the Creator, whatever that is, that can't be what that's talking about. And the reality is this, that out there, the sort of out there brokenness of shalom, the vandalized shalom that we see in the world is merely a reflection of what's in this room. We have broken marriages. We have scarred childhoods and abuse. We have neglect. We have loneliness. We have bitterness and envy and cancer. Last week, I'm with um, some of my best friends in the whole world. A guy I've been friends with since I was in sixth or seventh grade. And he, he says to myself and my wife, Amanda, he says, how, how, do, how do we tell the oldest of our four kids, who's now five? <laughs> There's my son. Yep. Shalom, buddy. Um, how do we tell the oldest of my four kids, who's now five, that I have terminal cancer? I said, how do you tell one of your oldest friends, who's 35, that you have terminal cancer? And we look at that and we go, that's just not the way it's supposed to be. That can't be the way it was, everything was designed to unfold in the world. That has to be some sort of picture of brokenness, of shalom. And the even more sobering truth. <laughs> Great to see you guys. Amanda, I love you. Kids, take it easy. <laughs> Did better than I thought they would. And the even more sobering truth, though, is this. We're not only victims of a broken and, sh- and vandalized shalom, we're also contributors to, participants in, perpetrators of brokenness. All of us have that broken shalom within us. How do we deal with it? Some of us will turn to empty religious practices, trying to sort of build a ladder or a, a ladder from God to us or vice versa. Some of us will try different coping mechanisms. Some of us will hide. Some of us will escape. Others of us will turn to sort of lashing out in anger and in frustration. But we all know that stuff, all those habits and behaviors lead us to further brokenness and isolation. And this is not the way God intended us to live. I mean, we look at this, our sort of world, and we go, what does God intend to do with the brokenness of his creation? And we can say that Easter is not about peeps. It's not about pink shirts. It's not about Easter bunnies. It's that God at Easter looked at his broken creation and said, I cannot keep you at arm's length. And so he came to be among us and with us even to the point of death according to the scriptures. And so you have, when Paul speaks about the crucifixion and the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, of first importance is this event. We have to understand that that just didn't happen in a vacuum. It didn't happen because God's like, hey, look, check, check me out. I, I can raise people from the dead. It wasn't like he was in a good mood that day. There was something else happening. And that story begins all the way back with God's intentions to create to begin with. And as that creation gets vandalized, broken, fractured, its ripple effects ripple even thousands and thousands of years later into our lives, 
that God doesn't stay far away from us, although we would be understandable if he did, but he puts forward this Jesus as the climax of Israel's story, as, as the fulfillment of all of these hints early in the Bible, that God isn't going to just sit back and wait for it to fix itself. There's no social reform program that's going to fix this. There's no amount of education that's going to fix this. There's no altar big enough to fix this. There's no religion worthy enough to fix this. That every implement human beings design to cure their own darkness is infected instead by it. And so God comes as rescuer in the person of this Jesus. That is why there is so much effort and thought and celebration put into a day like today. Because we're not saying that Jesus just shows up as a nice religious figure. We're not saying Jesus shows up as a guy with some new opinions. No, the claim is far more radical than that. In fact, uh, because I'm a pastor and, uh, you know, when people ask me, like on airplanes, what do you do? I never want to tell them. Because does that further conversation or end conversation? That ends conversation. It absolutely, so I always talk about my modeling career. And I just say, you know, I, you know, I model husky shirts. And, uh, and, and, you know, people don't believe it. They just, they just say, no, 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 no. You just, you have to model just slim fitting shirts. Oh, no, 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 no. And, and, and one of the questions I always get whenever I get into conversation with people is, well, okay, you Christians, you just seem a little odd. And that is so true in so many ways. But it seems like when you go talking like Jesus is the only way to God, that just seems so narrow. And, and that seems so closed-minded. And I always, I always say, okay, okay, it's worse than that. I mean, if you're going to be mad at us, just let's, I mean, it's worse. It's not that Jesus is the way to God, It's that Jesus is God showing up on earth coming after us. It's not not Jesus introducing a new ladder that we can use to climb to be made right right with God is what I was trying uh, to say there in English. I spoke in Swahili for a moment. I'm sorry, it just busts out every now and again. Inwardly, I'm not a white man. I want you to understand that. What were we talking about? (laughs) Ladder to God, thank you very much. See, the Bible isn't the story of humanity's search for God. It is really the story of God's search for us. In fact, one of the biographers of Jesus, a guy named John, writes in John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word. And notice, that word, Word, is capitalized. It was a title. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was... God. And then if you jump down to verse 14, the word became flesh. It's not that, hey, Jesus is like one way to God out of many ways to God. It's that God made a personal appearance. It's that if you want to know exactly what God is like, you look at Jesus. Now, this is where the church screws it up. Can I get an amen? Every now and again, we substitute a whole bunch of other stuff for the simple, compelling, subversive presence of Jesus. The people that knew Jesus would never have described him as safe, predictable, boring, or religious. He was a controversial figure, and what was so scandalous about him was his love. That was what was so horrifying to the religious leaders of his day. You have to understand, it was the religious people who were suspicious of Jesus. It wasn't the sinful people. 
The sinful people flocked to him because nobody else dared to make God's love that available. Everybody else, there were hoops you had to jump through. You had to get cleaned up first. Jesus, he touches people and he makes them clean. He welcomes prostitutes and tax collectors to his table. And back then, you didn't do that. So if you're here this morning and you're not, you're not like a big fan of the whole church thing, don't hold the church against Jesus. I dare you to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and not come away totally compelled because he's so surprising. I mean, you just would never imagine that God would actually be this good, ever. And so what we celebrate isn't, hey, something happened 2,000 years ago that's really cool with God showing off. No, no, what we celebrate is that God himself took upon himself all of the darkness and the vandalism of shalom, all of the brokenness, everything this world could do. And then three days later, he was serving breakfast to his followers. Like, that's in the Bible. It's, it's, he just shows up and he's like, I'm hungry. Evidently, resurrecting works up quite an appetite. I hope to find that out someday myself. But, but what we celebrate isn't just that there was this dead dude and we couldn't find his body. No, no, no. It's that God himself made an appearance and that thing we call resurrection is actually a foretaste, an appetizer for what's coming for everything else. In fact, if, if you go back to that 1 Corinthians passage that, that Jeff started with, later on in that same chapter, Paul says this, and if you're new to the Bible, this isn't going to make a whole lot of sense, but he says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, fallen asleep is a very Jewish way of talking about somebody who's died. For since death came through a man, this Adam that Jeff was talking about, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn, Christ who is the first fruits, then when he comes back, those who belong to him. Now, because we're not all farmers, the concept of first fruits is just a little bit odd to us. It's... it's what you would do if you wanted to show gratitude to God is you would literally take the first part of your crop and you would bring it before God and offer it back. That was called the first fruits. It was the first and the best. And it was a way of saying thank you. So the idea is that Paul is saying Jesus in his resurrection is actually the first example of something that's coming to everything else. Think about it this way, if, if, if that doesn't clear it up for you. Think about it this way. I, I grew up in Ohio, and the H in Ohio stands for heaven. The O in Ohio stands for oh my goodness. And the I in Ohio stands for the fact that I was born there. <laughs> Nothing. You, got, you people are hungry for lunch, aren't you? You're just trying to endure this to get to lunch. Well, I tell you. There will not be a peep eaten until I get done with my little spiel. <laughs> Growing up in the great state of Ohio, I wasn't aware that there were other places that never had five months of clouds in winter. And, and what would happen is right about the end of October, you, you saw it coming. And, and gray, just a gray blanket would enshroud God's holy land. 
for the next five months. I mean, literally, and you don't have stuff to do. I mean, it's not like you can go to the Great Park when it's 14 degrees out, you know? I mean, you just, you kind of stay inside and you eat casseroles, and that's what we do. I still do that, and it's awesome. And, and what you do, what you do, and, and you could never see this coming, but one day, invariably, without question, one day in the middle of winter, February-ish, one day it would be 60 degrees. Out of nowhere, the cl- clouds would part, the sunshine, you'd come out of your house and you just wouldn't recognize this bright light in the sky and all of these very untanned bodies would just receive some vitamin D that had to last them for two months. But it was, that one 60 degree day, was the first fruits of what was coming in its fullness later. So you'd enjoy that day because it was not only a day to enjoy, but it was a day that reminded you that more was coming. And that affected then the rest of the journey. What Paul is saying is similar. That what happened to this Jesus is actually going to happen to all of those who are in him. And not only to those people, but it will spread in the same way that sin and death spread to all of creation. New creation, resurrection will spread to all creation. In fact, the story ends in the, in the big scary book of Revelation. If you want it boiled down, God wins. That, that's the book of Revelation. Chapter 21, a prophet named John says, I saw in the future a new heaven and a new earth for a first heaven and a first earth had passed away. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Whenever Jesus talks about life in the age to come, he always uses bridal imagery. Evidently, what life is like in the age to come isn't us in, like, with wings and playing harps on clouds. It turns out to be something resembling a feast, something resembling a party. And I heard, verse 3, a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order, this order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And very often, Easter feels like, like to use a football analogy, it's like Good Friday's the touchdown, right? It's the main point. It's like, it's, he, we get forgiven, and, and if we receive this sacrifice of Jesus, we go to heaven. And then Easter is kind of like the extra point. It's cool, but it's just bonus. But the scriptures don't speak of it that way. The whole Easter thing, the Good Friday, his death, his burial, his resurrection, that whole thing is of first importance. And the reason it is, is because it not just secures forgiveness for those who trust in this Jesus, but it actually is the inauguration of this whole new creation that God is about. See, it started with shalom, it ends with shalom. So he is pushing and moving and redeeming to make all things new. My wife and I were watching The Passion of the Christ on Good Friday. And many of you have seen it. You know how brutal and gruesome it is. And there's one line in there. As, as, as Jesus is depicted as carrying his cross, beaten and bloody, and his mom interrupts this procession and begins to speak to him. And he looks at her and he says, Behold, I am making everything new. And the juxtaposition of that. Here, is, here he is. He is utterly destroyed. 
But it was in that seeming defeat that victory was achieved. In what looked like weakness, there was actually strength. What looked like suffering was actually glory. What looked like defeat was actually victory. In God's crazy, upside-down way of doing things. What? He defeated death by dying. He defeated suffering by suffering. And so what the empty tomb promises for those of us isn't just warm like fuzzies that everything's going to be okay. No, no, no. It's much deeper than that. It's that we look backward at a resurrection. We anticipate looking forward a resurrection. And we recognize presently there's resurrection. In other words, there are stories to tell that when this Jesus invades a life, even today, he disrupts, he overturns, he forgives, he restores, he resurrects. Literally, one of the passages that is so profound in the New Testament is when anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old order of them has passed away and the new order has begun. And so you get this cosmic story in which we are invited to find our stories. That resurrection isn't just a figment, and it's not just an empty hope, but it's a reality. We live in the springtime now of that one 60-degree day that is the first fruits of what's coming. And so we grieve, yes, of course we grieve for the cancer and the death, the disease, the fractured relationships in our lives, of course. But Paul says we grieve differently from those who have no hope. And so for generations, what Christians do on a day like today is they say to each other, he is risen. And the response is always, he is risen indeed. When they say he is risen, the earliest Christians meant that I don't know how God is going to redeem it. I mean, there are times when the darkness seems to be winning, when evil seems to be growing, things seem to be getting worse for all of our technology, our sophistication, our education. It seems like it's getting worse and worse and worse. We keep inventing new ways to destroy each other. Spiritually, emotionally, physically. And what the early Christians would do is they would say to each other, He is risen. And what that meant is that we don't know how God will redeem it. The empty tomb just promises He will. And when somebody would say back to them, he is risen indeed, what they were saying is that the evil of this life does not have the last word over you. Cancer does not have the last word. Divorce does not have the last word. The resurrection changed the way the world works. The worst that can happen to you doesn't have the last word. And that's why Jesus would look at his followers after his resurrection and he would say, do not be afraid, I have overcome the world. And and if there isn't a more appropriate word to be spoken into our fear-drenched culture, I don't know what is. That the very worst that could happen to you isn't the last thing to be said. We not only want to talk about resurrection this morning, we want to show resurrection this morning. Many ways to do that. We do something that we call cardboard testimonies in our community. It's where just normal average folks on one side of a big old piece of cardboard write what they were like apart from this Jesus. And and then they flip it over and the words describe what 
life is like now with this Jesus. And you have to understand, the only difference between the two sides is Jesus. It's, it's not, I once was imperfect and now I'm perfect. You know, I, I once wasn't religious and now I'm religious. No, no, no. I once was lost, but now I'm found. That's what Jesus does. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. I once was blind, but now I see. This Jesus is relentlessly pursuing each and every one of you. If you come away with anything, please come away with that. He's not trying to turn you into a religious person. He's not trying to get you to join a cult. (laughs) He's not after your money. (laughs) Come on. Jesus, out of his ruthless and fierce love for you, is trying to woo you back into the purpose for which you were created originally. To, known and to, to be known and to know him. To worship, to serve, to find out what it really means to be truly human and to stop settling for the counterfeits and lies of this world. That's, that is what Jesus comes bearing. And so we not just talk, we don't just talk resurrection, we show resurrection. I want to show you some of these testimonies from brothers and sisters that are just like you. So let me pray as we do that. Lord, we give you praise and glory and honor for the way in which you surprise us, the way in which you're so unexpected, the way in which you love us beyond our capacities to even begin to appreciate or imagine. We thank you, Lord, that you still make dead things alive. You still subvert. You still overturn. You still disrupt. That you are ruthless in how you come after us. You are fierce in your love for us. And Lord, my prayer, very simply, is that for those who feel very far away from you, they might get a glimpse of what happens when you invade a life. And Lord, that they might get a picture of your great love, far beyond religion. So Lord, um, would you be pleased to draw us to yourself this morning? Amen.